Okay, we are live. I am here with Alexander McCurse in London, the Oracle of London, and we are very happy and very honored to have with us the one and only Mr. Brian Berletic of the New Atlas. I will have all of Brian's information where you can follow him in the description box down below. I actually have that there right now. And when the live stream ends, I will put all of Brian's information as a pinned comment down below. Brian, thank you for joining us. It is great to have you with us today. Thank you so much for having me back on. I think this is my, my first time back on since uh, the new year. So I hope everyone had a, a really good new year and, mm -hmm. and other holidays. Mm -hmm. Thank you very much. And uh, let's say hello to everybody that is watching us on <clears throat> Rockfin. Hello to everyone on Rockfin. Hello to everyone that is watching us on Odyssey and on Rumble. Rumble has a really nice design now. Looks really, really good. So in Rumble, you can actually now hit the like button. It is not a plus button anymore. So smash that like on Rumble as well. And on YouTube, hello to everyone on YouTube. Hello to our awesome moderators. I see Spartan Warrior Queen is with us. Peter is with us. And who else is there? Alan Watson. Hello to Alan. And I think that is everybody. Ah, GEC. GEC is also in the house. Great to have you with us as well. So hello to our moderators. Thank you very, very much for everything that you do. And I will now pass it on to Alexander and Brian so we can talk about those wonder weapons. Alexander, Brian, and thank you very much. And who better to talk about wonder weapons than Brian? If you really want to understand about Western military deliveries to Ukraine, because that's, of course, what we're talking about, then I have to say straightforwardly, there is no better authority that I know who goes through this difficult business. I mean, I find it very difficult of churning through these uh, Pentagon, uh, um, you know, plans every couple up which come out every few weeks to send more and more western equipment to ukraine and brian is able to take us through that explain to us what these weapons do and what they don't do and why they are not in fact miracle weapons now i think before we just rush it i just wanted to say that i've been doing a little bit of reading this morning about this latest delivery of 14 challenger 2 tanks by britain to Ukraine. And what I discovered is that way back in the spring of last year, Boris Johnson told Zelensky that Britain would not be supplying Challenger 2s, not under any circumstances. And our British Defence Secretary, Ben Wallace, actually went public and he said that supplies of Challenger 2s to Ukraine were ruled out because it wouldn't work. <laughs> Challenger 2 would not work in Ukraine. Well, what wouldn't work in the spring a few months later is now being delivered. So I think I think that's all I'm going to say by way of introduction, because this is the kind of thing that Brian is, as I said, much more expert at than certainly I am, who am not to put it mildly, someone who's ever handled weapons or operated weapons or any understanding of them. But 
briefly, we're getting all of these wonder weapons being sent to Ukraine. They're going in dribs and drabs. The reports I'm getting is that the number of tanks the West is now thinking of sending to Ukraine is all of 100. Well, Brian will tell us about that. I've also seen reports in the British media, The Guardian, but also other places, that the Ukrainians are expected to operate these tanks after six weeks training. Uh, that's going to provide them with some minimal level of competence, whatever that means. Brian will tell us what that means, or at least will explain a bit more about what that means. And the intention is to have all of these machines ready, operating, presumably supplied, presumably maintained, and with all the logistical systems organized by some point in the spring. Quite when in the spring, I'm not sure. Brian, is any of this realistic? And what is it really going to do? And are these, in fact, wonder weapons? Now, that's three huge questions. You can take them in time and let's have an actual discussion. But anyway, let, let's, let's uh, uh, over to you, if I can say this. Well, I, I think people may remember all of us weighing in on HIMARS, the M777s, us and, and other analysts saying that it's unrealistic. It's not, going, it's not going to help them. It's not going to change the tide. And what's interesting is that after the Kherson and Kharkov offensives, people said, oh, Brian, you know, you're totally wrong. HIMARS did change the tide. And yet here we are now talking about sending these tanks because once again, we need to change the tide. It's, it's, uh, they're right back to where they started again, where their military is exhausted. They are out of weapons and now, and now they need more. They need more weapons and they're inappropriate. The Challenger 2 is inappropriate. The Leopard 2 is inappropriate. It takes years for an army to integrate these type of heavy, sophisticated weapons uh, into the way they wage war. And there's a reason why that is. There's a reason why uh, when you join the U.S. Army, for example, it takes half a year to learn how to be a tanker because you, you, uh, when, when the Army gets you as a recruit, they have you for about four years and they want to maximize the, 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 you know, the amount of work you do for them in that, in that time. If they could shorten that from six months to six weeks, they would, but they can't because you would be useless to them. And so they're going to be handing these weapons over. Yes, you can train someone to drive a tank, fire the gun, and basically operate it on the battlefield, but not effectively in six weeks. They will go on the battlefield, they will be moving it downrange, and they will be trying to shoot things, and they will be picked off by Russian tankers and, and other uh, Russian soldiers operating a, a vast variety of weapon systems designed specifically to destroy these tanks. They would be picked off. Uh, they will be eliminated, and this the, the impact of these weapons will be rendered moot, just like the HIMARS and the M777s and everything else that they've sent. And uh, part of the, the British weapons package was uh, also 30 AS-90 self-propelled howitzers. This is Britain's own version of the M109, because even though NATO talks about uh, compatibility because of the corruption and the desire for British arms manufacturers to make money, they wanted to develop their own with their own engine, their own transmission, their own fire control. So when you send these to Ukrainians, even if they've learned how to use the M109, now they have to learn how to use the AS90 all over again. And the whole reason they're sending 30 is because Ukraine is continuously losing M109s. The US is sending 18 specifically for that reason. So this is this is a constant problem. And they're they're sending these weapons 
only because there is no better alternative. The alternative is leaving Ukrainians in the on the battlefield with small arms, uh, rifles and machine I, guns. It is. I have to say that I am astonished at how difficult it is, it seems, for many people in the West to understand this. There seems to be this general idea, if you provide Ukraine with tanks, they can just go ahead and use them the following day. I mean, that seems to be the operative assumption that a lot of people have. I read article after, after article about this from all sorts of people who you would think, you know, know better. Now, perhaps because I'm not a technical person, I look at one of these things, 75 tons of it is. I mean, driving a thing like that, I mean, you that will require some level of skill. Four people operate a thing like this. Again, I mean, I've managed people in the past, presumably operating a tank, which has a team of four people. One more, by the way, than Russian tanks do. Russian tanks typically have a crew of three. But operating a tank with a team of four people, it takes a very long time to get a team built around four people you have to sort of get everybody to know each other well to understand how the the thing works what it can do what it can't do you know every machine is temperamental in some way i mean i'm sure that's true i'm sure that every tank is slightly different from every other tank um, i mean the idea that you could just provide these things so quickly and that it could somehow turn things around. And no one, no one seems to consider maintenance or logistical things. Now, once upon a time, long ago, um, I used to uh, do a lot of work with um, an industrial company. And they used to, they, they used to involve a lot of that involved heavy vehicles, heavy, you know, uh, trucks and things of that kind. And I have some idea of how maintenance intensive those kind of wheeled vehicles are. This is a tracked vehicle. 75 tons is what the Challenger 2 weighs. And Leopard 2s are a bit lighter, but, you know, perhaps 65, 70 tons, that kind of thing. The, the maintenance demands of vehicles like this are going to be enormous. And, you know, you look at Ukraine, you see pictures of the Ukrainian landscape, and you say to yourself, how is this going to work? I mean, it isn't going to work by any stretch. Now, as I understand it, and Brian, you're, you know, you're the person who understands this a lot better than us. These machines were designed to fight the Soviets in Central Europe, in Germany, basically. Germany is a very different landscape from Ukraine. It's heavily built up. There's metal roads. There's lots of machines and, you know, tools and warehouses, all that kind of thing. The roadways there are superb. There's the autobahns, all that kind of thing. This is about as different from the landscape of Ukraine as it is possible to get. So, I mean, I am just baffled by the fact, not, not, just, not the ignorance of people, because, you know, I come to this whole topic with a certain level of ignorance, but at 
the lack of basic comprehension that people are bringing to this thing. I mean, high mass missiles, I can just about see how they could work. M777s, I could see how those could work. But these lumbering monsters, how are they possibly going to work? And even Ben Wallace, our defense secretary, as I said, was saying only a few months ago, it won't work. And yet here we are. Uh, well, they're they're right. It's not going to work. They're, they're going to send them. They're going to run into all kinds of problems. The media is going to try to paper over it as best as possible, just like with the HIMARS and the M777s. There's still people out there that believe they've turned the tide, even though at the exact same time, they're saying, let's send tanks. We have to send tanks or Ukraine's going to lose because, again, they're right back where they started at this position of disadvantage, uh, being disadvantaged here. Uh, you, you're absolutely right. The heavier a vehicle is, the more maintenance is required uh, more often. And so you you have these Leopard 2 tanks, you have these Challengers, the, the M1 Abrams. I, I believe that they all have, well, I'm not sure about the Challenger, but the, the Abrams and the Leopard have a, 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 power, a power pack that they just drop in and they can take it out because they, they have to be changed out so frequently when you operate them. And you have to have a special recovery vehicle for these tanks. They're, they're much bigger than anything that Ukraine has been using up until now. And because Russia is taking apart Ukraine's power grid, how are they moving these tanks from, from Poland, presumably, to the front line a thousand kilometers into the country? And then when they break down, they're not the Ukrainians aren't going to be able to fix them. Uh, this is actually one of the things I did in the Marine Corps as electro optical ordnance repairman. I fixed the fire control and optics on things like an M1 Abrams. I trained for nine months to do that job. And then when I got to the fleet, I had no idea how to do anything. All I was able to do was assist the people who have been there for a year, two years or longer. And then after a year or two, okay, then then I, I start to figure out how how things can can be done. So this is the problem that these Ukrainian soldiers are going to face operating them. They're going to have to send them back to Poland to be repaired. There's no way they're setting up maintenance facilities in Ukraine because as soon as they do, Russia is going to shoot a, a cruise missile at it. This is what they've been doing. This is why things like uh, the, the howitzers have been sent back to Poland. And we have articles in the Western media talking about how they, they spend all of this time out of action uh, they wear out, they break down, and they have to be repaired. They can't be repaired anywhere in Ukraine. This is going to be a constant problem for Ukraine. I, I honestly, I don't know what else they could do. I mean, obviously, the the logical the logical course to take is negotiate end this. Uh, why is Ukraine allowing themselves to be used as a proxy for NATO against Russia? That is the only actual logical solution to this problem. Everything else is desperation. That is that is what this is sending. Uh, so they're sending Bradleys, they're sending Modders, they're sending Leopards, they're sending Challengers. Uh, so four, four different vehicles. And I, I've heard the British are sending these uh, armored personnel carriers as well. So that that's more added to this hodgepodge of equipment that they have. There is a reason why armies everywhere, east and west, they standardize. Because the, mm -hmm. the more standardized your equipment is, the more streamlined your logistics, maintenance, and, and sustainment is. And so Ukraine is doing the exact opposite. It is becoming more and more complex as this conflict drags on. So, yeah, I mean, it's, it's 
it is it is extremely it is it's compounding the problem is compounding absolutely i mean the the british vehicles the track vehicles they're sending along with the tanks and the self-propelled guns are bulldogs bulldogs date from the 60s obviously they've been updated since then but i mean you know if you if you um follow the news in britain for example you know lived in Britain. I mean, the Bulldog is actually quite a familiar vehicle in the British Army. It's it was introduced in the 1960s. It's our equivalent of the M113, only, of course, it's steel. The M113 is made of aluminium. I mean, already there are differences. And it, it's not going to change anything on the battlefields. And it's an old vehicle. And it, it's there was talk about sending... Um, warrior infantry fighting vehicles but somebody seems to have stopped that because to be frank we haven't got that many of them we don't have that many of our challenger two tanks and that's the other problem because this is now the other thing that's being exposed because they're talking about sending a hundred tanks you could tell us what difference a hundred tanks even if they're all the problems are sorted out you have the best trained soldiers the most smooth running logistical um, maintenance facilities but um, but there's they're apparently struggling to find those 100 tanks because spain has said they can't send any tanks i mean that they're, they're leopard twos most of them apparently are broken down they hardly work those that they have they're not prepared to give up finland has talked about sending some but apparently there's pushback there as well each finnish Leopard 2 has apparently a designated role, or at least that's what they're telling us. Britain doesn't have that many tanks either. Um, interestingly, France doesn't seem to be entering this game at all. They have their own tank, <laughs> the Leclerc, which is different from all the ones we've just been talking about. Uh, but apparently they're not going to send it because, again, they only have a limited number, so they can't afford to send any Leclercs. So they're, they're, they're scrabbling around to find these tanks and it's not proving easy. So you're going to get, a, say, two tanks from Finland, a couple from Greece, because, you know, Greece, after all, we're going to provide tanks, even though it's probably not in our interest to do that. You're going to find, you know, other countries. Poland is going to provide some. They're talking about, I think, around a score. <laughs> They're going to cobble together this tank force from all these different places with Challenger 2 tanks, which are completely different from the Leopard 2s. And as I said, the total number we're going to get is about 100. So what are 100 tanks? Let's assume these are perfect tanks, perfectly operating, brilliantly trained crews. What are they going to achieve on a battlefield on this scale? Well, first of all, Ukraine had hundreds, in, in the plural, hundreds of tanks that they knew how to operate, had, had crews that had experience for years operating them. They had the ability to, to repair them, uh, sustain them, the ammunition to, to give them to continue firing on the battlefield, and Russia destroyed them all. And then NATO uh, collected Soviet-era tanks from, from their Eastern European member states and sent, again, hundreds of tanks to Ukraine to replace those losses. Mm -hmm. And those are all gone now, too, following the Kherson and Kharkov offensives. And so now they're talking about 100. Let's, let's just say it's two or even 300, the, the number mm -hmm. that General Zeluzhny asked for. Russia has thousands of tanks that they can put on the battlefield. They also have the ability to 
and the numbers vary. And I'm I'm taking this number from uh, uh, it's a it's a it's a U.S. government funded anti-Russian propaganda outlet, Novoya Gazeta, and they said the production number for for Russia annually is 850. That's 200 to 250 brand new tanks, probably T T90s, and uh, the the rest are modernized tanks and and. A modernized tank, for all intents and purposes, is a modern new tank on the battlefield. And what that means is they have uh, updated fire control systems and they have modern optics. They can see day or night under any weather condition. They can see the enemy before the enemy sees them and they can fire the first shot and destroy the enemy. That's what a modernized tank is. And so Russia will have thousands of these they can put eight up to 850 if that number is correct. I, I believe the number is higher. And I believe even if it is 850, that number will become higher. Uh, and how is the West going to match that? They they cannot. It's just like with the, the artillery. Ukraine has been outgunned from the beginning. They are still outgunned. As a matter of fact, uh, they say that Ukraine started out with 1,800 artillery pieces. Now they're down to 300 something. Um, uh, made up of donated systems from the West. So this is this is going to be the same problem that plays out for Western main battle tanks. We mm. we don't have to guess what's going to happen to these tanks. They have been used in, in combat recently. Uh, the Leopard 2 was used in northern Syria. Irregular forces, Kurdish forces, uh, the so-called Islamic State, they just they destroyed these tanks and they they created uh, huge problems for the Turkish military. The Turkish military, who had crews trained for years to operate these, they had logistics. They also had the ability to operate, uh, uh, to conduct combined arms warfare. That means they had air power, artillery, inf uh, infantry support, and the tanks all operating together. And they've trained to do this under uh, much more ideal conditions than Ukraine can. And they still face these problems. The Saudis in Yemen, they had M1 Abrams. Okay, so that this is supposed to be one of the best tanks. It, it, they have suffered uh, losses to, again, irregular forces. Israel, in 2006, they sent in their Merkava tanks into southern Lebanon and Hezbollah. Used, and guess what? All of these irregular forces are using Russian-made anti-tank weapons. So from 2006 all the way up to present day, Russian-made anti-tank weapons have proven themselves effective against these Western main battle tanks operated by some of the best tank crews in the world. Tank crews that have trained for years to operate them and tank crews that are part of combined arms warfare. This is not what Ukraine is going to be going into battle with, with these Western main battle tanks. They will not be able to conduct combined arms warfare. They will not have the, the benefit of experience and proper training or proper logistics or proper anything. This is what they're going to be going up against. Uh, not, not just Russian-made anti-tank weapons, but the Russians themselves operating them, along with a whole slew of other weapon systems designed to, to target and destroy mm -hmm. something like mm -hmm. these tanks. Absolutely. Uh, on, the, on the topic of you know, tanks and machines being destroyed on the battlefield, now, um, again, in Britain, there's been a lot of discussion about these self-propelled guns that we're going to be providing to Ukraine, all, as I said, eight, was it 30 of them. Well, apparently, there is a Polish ad adaption of this 
British gun, a self-propelled gun, which is called the Crab. Now, the Crab, K-R-A-B, by the way, is apparently takes the turret of the British gun and it combines it with a South Korean, uh, um, you know, chassis. And it's but anyway, it has some similarities. The Poles apparently supplied 20 to Ukraine. And of those 10 have already been destroyed. And <laughs> that has just been over the last few weeks. So, all right, we've, we're going to provide 10 more than the Poles did. But, um, and I think you pointed out in one of your recent programs, that is a quarter of Britain's total force of self-propelled guns of this type. I mean, I'm sure of all, of all types. And, you know, we're going to supply all of these. But the burn rate of these, of these machines on the Ukrainian battlefields is astonishing. And partly I'm sure that's because the Ukrainians don't have the time to learn how to use them properly. I'm sure that's partly the case. But regardless, I mean, this is an intense battlefield in which Ukraine doesn't have air superiority and all those things. And I mean, the fact is 30 of these things isn't going to survive for very long. I mean, you know, You've been saying this all the time. You talked about, you know, the Kherson, Kharkov, how Ukraine was burning through its weapon systems in these counteroffensives. Well, this is exactly what they're going to be doing again with all these machines. It's exact. They're going to do the exact same thing, only it's it's going to be worse this time because previously they were uh, there were some Soviet era systems mixed in that Ukrainians would have been familiar with and would have been able to. Uh, but just as you pointed out, and I don't know if people realize this, but there are so many variants of the Leopard 2. So when they say they're going to send Leopard 2s, which which variants are they going to send? And what are the differences between these variants? And then they're going to have to, to train crews to operate the different variants. And then, uh, you know, what if they get transferred to another Leopard 2 that is of a different variant? So you you can see what the problem is. And the, the, the problem that we see across the Western media is that a lot of these people are completely ignorant of how any of this works. They're not interested. Uh, they want to push a particular narrative. But I think a lot of people watch movies. They see the hero jumping into any old vehicle and uh, wiping out the enemy with it. It doesn't, doesn't work that way. When you uh, handle a real weapon, even something like a rifle or a machine gun, it is much more complicated than, than it initially looks. And there is so much to learn about it, to use it effectively. And you have to do absolutely everything, not just operate it, aim it, be able to adjust the sights to, to keep it accurate. And you have to continuously do that. And you have to practice to do that, to do it quickly. You also have to do maintenance because if you don't do maintenance, it's going to break down. And if you're in the middle of a firefight and your gun jams, that's the end of you. And that's just with something, you know, simple, relatively simple, uh, uh, you know, small arms. Now we're talking about tanks. Now we're talking about something that if the track comes off of a leopard, how, what are you doing with that in the battlefield? You need a, you need a specialized recovery vehicle to pull that out. And I'm, I'm not 100% sure that the Soviet era recovery vehicles that Ukraine may already have are capable of doing that. Uh, you could get another tank to try to pull it out, but then what are you doing? You're, you're putting extra strain on the transmission that is going to wear that tank down much quicker. This is, these were all problems that the Germans had during World War II, ironically. And uh, it's just un it's unbelievable. It's hard to believe that people are going to do this 
again. They're going to do all of this all over again. History is replete with warnings against doing this. And yet this is exactly what they're doing. It's, it's, it's quite unbelievable, actually. It, it's, it's, it's not just unbelievable. It's also extremely cruel because the people who are being asked to operate these things are being put in incredible danger, which is, uh, you know, so you're training people up to a couple of weeks to train, you know, to, to operate these things. Yeah, they're going to send them into battle against, a, you know, a, a far more powerful military with thousands of tanks, as you said, thousands of infantry fighting vehicles, all these anti-tank weapons that you've been mentioning. Uh, the survival rates of the people who are going to be operating these things is going to be, well, so it seems, very short. And yet that is what you are going to do. Uh, I, I think that there is an obsessive aspect to this now. Um, I mean, I, 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 I have always understood, I mean, you know, we've discussed many times, you know, Ukraine clinging on to these places, fighting for every millimeter of ground, fighting from Solidar, fighting for Bakhmut. We've talked about this on many programs, suffering these enormous losses. And we've discussed the rationales that might exist for this. But it does seem to me that there is an obsessive thing now starting to take shape, that people are becoming fixated in some way. And they're just throwing everything they can at a problem without really thinking through what it is actually that they are doing. And I read the British media, especially because obviously I live here. And I have to say that the lack of empathy with Ukrainians who are suffering in this war really staggers me. Yeah, uh, it, it does. And I, I, you know, you see supposedly pro-Ukrainian voices across the Western media saying, you know, send these tanks. But then when you, just like you said, you, when you really actually think about what you're doing is you're, you're going to be putting uh, young, I mean, these are people's sons. These are people's brothers, fathers, husbands. These are people that are going to their deaths. And uh, we, we've, seen, we've seen that with the, the troops being trained by the British, and then they get just get sent in, their units get wiped out. Because this is not how you build an army. You cannot build an army like this. They are trying to do something yes. that is impossible, that has been repeatedly proven impossible. Uh, so just think about it. In Kherson, the, the Russians were, and, and the Western media reported on this. The Washington Post of all papers reported on the lopsided nature of the fighting. And Russia could wipe out something the size of a, a company, a tank company in about one or two days, maybe three days. In whatever you know, as they were sending these waves of tanks, and when you think about how hard it's going to be to sustain these tanks on the battlefield, you're going to have to imagine how Ukraine might use them. Are they're going to probably try to use them in a single thrust because they're not going to be able to to use them continuously on the battlefield, or they could use them in the defensive and and keep them back. That you know just. I'm just imagining the most efficient way to use something that you're not going to be able to keep operating for a long period of time. So if they're going to be throwing them into a, an offensive like Kherson, like Kharkov, and, and we've all talked about this as well, Russia not only 
was was stopping those pushes around Kherson. But now they have created these defensive lines specifically designed to stop armored advances. They have ditches, they have the dragon's teeth, they have all of these barriers designed to slow them down to keep these tanks in the kill zone uh, that, that Russian weapons will have already prepared to fire into. And they're going to wipe these weapon systems out. And then uh, we're talking maybe 100, but let's, let's say the number is higher. They're not going to be able to send another tranche that large. Again, the production numbers are just far too small. And uh, Russia will be able to replace their losses. And so we see where this is all going. What, what is all of this about? This is about buying time. But buying time to do what? I don't, I honestly, I don't know. Uh, mm. the, the U.S. themselves, they've talked about, uh, if we had to fight the, the Russians, they have anti-access area denial weapon systems that, that we mm. don't have an answer to. And so this, this is a problem even for the U.S. So how, how is it not a problem for Ukrainian forces? Mm. I got a very I got an email yesterday from a from a viewer and I just wanted your thoughts about this Ryan and this viewer made the point that what the west has been trying to do in Ukraine ever since the war started is make up create an army bit by bit whilst the war a war is actually going on so you know you don't build an army in that way you build an army you train it you get the equipment you you know do all of the things you do them well essentially all together instead we you know first we send a few light weapons then we send a few guns then we send a few uh drones then we send a few high mass then we send a few uh tanks and we seem to imagine that somehow in the middle of a war you're going to get an army created in that kind of a way. Yeah, well, think about it. How, how many times do we hear about the Javelin or the Stinger missile system now nowadays? How often do we hear about it? We don't. We don't hear anything about it unless we're talking about uh, backfill orders that uh, Western arms manufacturers are getting to replace them over the next couple of years because that's mm. how long it's going to take to replace mm. what they have sent Ukraine and, and Russia still, after sending all of those missiles, and, and we've talked about this, how, you know, if you send a thousand javelins, it does not mean a thousand destroyed Russian tanks. Uh, under ideal conditions, U.S. Army soldiers with experience under training conditions, maybe will hit a target 19% of the time. Ukrainians in actual combat are going to hit it much, much less. So they've burned through these weapons the U.S. and their allies don't have more to send. And just as you say, even if they send all of this all together, all at one time, Russia already has a, a, a combined arms military on the battlefield. They already have that. And so that, that would have been your best chance at matching or surpassing what Russia had on the battlefield. But when you send it bit by bit by bit, you're just dragging you're just dragging this out. You're, you're dragging mm. it out. And you, like you say, you're sending these people to their deaths because you are not giving them what they need to, to even stabilize the front line. So we, we were told that HIMARS, M777s, they changed the tide. And yet now we're watching Ukrainian forces fall back at Solidar. Yeah. They're, it looks like they're going to be encircled at Bakhmut. How, is, how does this happen 
if Ukraine was mm. on the offensive, the tide was turned and Russia was in shambles and, and in retreat. How does that happen? It happens if that's not what's actually taking place. If it's, it's what happens when this is a war of attrition, Russia prepared for years to fight this type of war mm. and uh, the U.S. and its allies did not. Well, that's the other thing, because the Russians understand exactly what we're doing. And they're now showing clear signs, it seems to me, of being able to anticipate what our next moves are going to be. So I think you discussed this, actually. You were very insightful, by the way, in a particular video that you did, a comment of Putin's, which I completely missed, in which he said, look, you know, it's not true that the West has run out of tanks. They've got plenty of tanks. They've got their own tanks. They've run out of Soviet-style tanks. But they, they've got their own Western tanks and they've still got those. And looking back, because he said that about, well, two months ago, I think, he was clearly signaling that the Russians were expecting Western tanks to start appearing on the battlefields. And again, you see that the, the physical evidence of that on the ground. I mean, I was wondering... Why are they building all these enormous fortifications, the dragon's teeth, <laughs> the tank traps, all of these things, which, again, you discussed so well in your program? Well, again, we can see that they figured out long before, you know, people like me did, that these Western tanks, despite what Ben Wallace saying, was saying about, you know, it not working, that these Western tanks were on the way. So they're anticipating our moves. And they're preparing for them. And, well, we could we could guess what's going to happen, or so it seems to me. Uh, yeah. So Russia anticipated this, and they were prepared weeks before the announcements were even made. Now, a lot of people are asking me about, you know, what if, what if Western operators are in these vehicles? Mm. It, it'll improve the situation slightly, but you still have the yeah. problem of going into combat without uh, combined arms, uh, mm. being able to fight with combined arms. So you're, you're just a tank on the battlefield or your tanks and infantry fighting vehicles and a little bit mm. of artillery. That is, not, that is not combined arms. You also need air power. You need significant artillery. You have to match or exceed what your enemy has. And uh, my last video, I went over this old Washington Post article from 1999 about the U.S. Uh, sending Apaches to Albania for use mm. uh, against Serbian mm. forces. And they decided not to use them because despite the extensive preparations they made, they made like uh, an entirely new uh, hel helicopter base. They had they brought in main battle tanks, Bradleys. They were talking about using ATACM missiles. They, they were talking about real combined arms warfare. And even still, they, they thought it was too risky and they thought they would lose too many Apache helicopters, so they decided against that. And that is, again, the U.S. at the peak of its military power and bringing in absolutely everything that it had. And, and they were going to use their, their warplanes as well, by the way. So if that was a situation that the U.S. backed off of, but now they're going to send Ukrainians, possibly Western operators, onto the battlefield under conditions where they're not going to have all of that support. They're not going to have long-range ballistic missile support, air, uh, air power, significant artillery supporting them. They're not going to have any of this. So even if they are Western operators, they're still going to have this problem. And Western operators may be able to use the tank on the battlefield, but when it breaks down, who's who's going to repair it? Who's going to bring it 
back to the rear and uh, fix it. So these are all problems. And who's going to continuously supply it with fuel and ammunition? Mm. And I, I don't know if people realize, but the Challenger 2 has a rifled main gun. And most main battle tanks, NATO and Russian, have smoothbore guns. So that, that is entirely different type of ammunition that they have to supply to whoever's using the Challenger 2s. And then they have to supply entirely different ammunition for the Leopard 2s. And then they, whatever they have left of these so Soviet era uh, tanks, they have to supply the ammunition for that. It's all different ammunition. So it, mm. it, it's just m more and more complexity yeah. under increasingly dire circumstances mm. that they have to try to use these weapon systems. Indeed. Can I just say about Western operators, if you're talking about the Challenger 2, I mean, realistically, they would have to be British operators. Now, if British operators go into battle operating Challenger 2s, even if they're not serving soldiers, which presumably they wouldn't be, but they'd be contractors, they would have to be ex-military because the only people who know how to operate Challenger 2s are the British. I mean, the only other country that's operated them on any scale is Jordan, I believe. But anyway, whatever. Maybe I'm wrong about that. But anyway, Britain is the only country in NATO that's operated Challenger 2s. If British operators are sent into battle and get killed, there are potentially major legal and political consequences for the British government. We saw that over Iraq, where British contractors were killed in battles. These people might come back, their families might come back very, very angry, saying you were sending us, you sending our loved ones to their death. They didn't have proper air cover. They weren't properly supported. I, I think that if this is indeed what's going to happen, or if this is indeed the plan, then I would say that politically speaking, it is a high risk plan. And if that's what the British authorities are thinking of doing, well, I have to say I'd be surprised and it would point to a very high degree of desperation indeed. So I can't talk about Leopard 2s, which I suspect are somewhat easier tanks to operate, maybe. And probably there's a much bigger pool of people who can use them. But... Um, I personally would be surprised if it was British contractors operating these Challenger 2s on the battlefields. I think that, as I said, it would be too high risk for the British government to do, which again begs the question of why are these tanks being supplied in the first place? Well, well something yourself and Alex have talked about many times during your updates uh, this could all possibly be leading to uh, a, a direct intervention by at least some NATO members. And so we've talked about Poland, Romania, the Baltic states. Uh, Poland has Leopard 2 tanks. They're, they're actually going to send one company, 14 tanks to Ukraine. This is what they've said. Uh, you, you know, we see videos of these foreign mercenaries or volunteers, whatever someone wants to call them, on the battlefield, they're usually running away from heavy Russian fire. They have small arms. I, I'm sure that there's a lot of them who really wish they could get their hands on some uh, heavier firepower. But again, it's, it's not going to change anything because they're, they're in the situation they're in in the first place because Ukraine is not capable 
of supporting their infantry. If they cannot support their infantry, they cannot support main battle tanks. This is this is a problem that is not going to, to be resolved mm. unless there is a, a, a direct intervention by Western forces. But mm. we go back to Russia preparing for it. We go back to Russian production numbers uh, based on what anti-Russian media have said versus Western production numbers. And we, ju- we just add it up and it just... just no matter which way you try to cut it, it does not add up in the West's favor. So it really is just a matter of how far they're willing to go to escalate it, how Mm. long they're willing to go to drag this out. Mm. And then at the end of the day, they're not just fighting Russia. This is about eliminating all peer and near peer competitors. There's still China sitting there. Uh, So even if they somehow manage to weaken Russia, not, not defeat Russia, but weaken them, they're, they're going to rebound because there's China there working with Russia. So I don't know where they Absolutely. think this is going, but but, but, but they've Absolutely. done this. Uh, Afghanistan, Syria. Yeah. I mean, that's a good point. I mean, I'm glad you brought in China because, of course, if you're talking about production numbers, we see that they're struggling to match Russia with in production numbers for military vehicles, ammunition, weapon systems, you name it. But of course, China dwarfs Russia in that respect. I mean, you know, if, if if the Russians can produce 850 tanks in a year, well, I'm not going to even try and guess how many the Chinese can make. If the China, if the Russians can produce a million rounds of ammunition a year, which is what apparently they were producing before the war began, I'm sure it's higher now. Um, well, I'm not going to even try to guess what. China, with its vastly bigger manufacturing base, could do. And so, again, one one does wonder, you know, what, what are these people actually thinking? And I was, you know, listening to Colonel McGregor. You know, he did a program, and he was saying that one of the fundamental problems is that people in the West, leaders in the West, don't understand, haven't understood how hollowed out, you know, their their manufacturing capacities have in fact become. They, they haven't really grasped this. They're still thinking back to a world which existed 50, 60, 70 years ago. And he made a very interesting comparison, which I have to say did strike me, which is that back in the 1920s, when Britain was starting to find itself in the same situation. The British were making commitments in all sorts of places, also making promises to come to the defense of all sorts of people in all sorts of places without at that point understanding that they were lacking the capacity to fulfill all these promises. That by this point, the British industrial base was simply not big enough to try to fulfill the demands that all of these commitments were making. And I wonder whether at the end of this war, this is something that Western leaders are suddenly going to understand and what the effect on them is of that is going to be. It, it really is. I mean, I, I, yeah. I've talked about it. You, you've talked about it. Uh, many people are talking about how out of touch with reality uh, Western leadership is. Uh, industrial capacity, and now the Western media is talking about this. This is not something that you could just flip a switch and 
uh, expand overnight. It takes years to do it. And it's not just about creating more space in your factory, expanding the, the physical size of the factory, bringing in additional equipment. That takes time. But it's also about the, the, the human resources. You need trained uh, uh, trained a trained workforce that has experience doing these things. And in the West, they, they have neglected that severely. And that, that is, again, that is something that takes even longer to cultivate and expand over time. And so we were talking about China. In China, they have a huge, a huge pool of uh, talent that knows how to do different types of, uh, different skill sets needed for manufacturing from design to actual fabrication. Uh, I, that that Novoya Gazeta article was trying to mock Russia about how their main battle tanks are being assembled manually on the, 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 on the assembly floor. And this is how all, this is how all sophisticated weapons are made. Even aircraft, large aircraft are, you know, the, the individual pieces may utilize automated manufacturing, but when you put them all together, there are people doing that because they're so complex. And so that is a that is the media, ex, you know, exposing their ignorance on how all of this works. And then we see people in leadership positions who should know better also saying ridiculous things that are just so implausible. And it, re it really is a toss up between whether they're ignorant or they're dishonest or maybe a little bit of both, but either way, it's scary because they're escalating toward a situation they cannot get themselves out of. You know, on that topic about, you know, hand making, you know, putting, you know, assembling tanks by hand and you're absolutely right. That is how it's done. Now, I, I some time ago, quite a long time ago, got to know somebody from Nizhny Tagil where Ural Vagon Zavod is based. This is, by the way, in, in the Cold War, it was the biggest tank factory in the world. And this person who knew that tank factory told me that the total available labor force which could be deployed to operate that factory, and this is, you know, post-Soviet times, this was, you know, around mid to mid 2000s about 2007 2008 he said that the total available manpower pool to operate that factory is 30,000 30,000 people who are and i am sure it's increased by then because since then because of course what provoked that was that i think it was in 2007 oral vagonzovod fulfilled certain orders for tanks and was actually at that in that particular year, it was actually producing more tanks than every other tank plant in the world taken together. And it did it effortlessly. And, he, you know, I said, how, how can you do that? And he said, this is how tank, our factories are structured. I, I've discussed this before. I've seen this myself, you know, in places like Perm. Russian factories are designed to be able to increase volumes very, very rapidly. And as I said, there is this huge labor pool of people, many of them very skilled, skilled technicians who can be called on very rapidly to sort of accelerate production very, very fast. And I was reading, again, an article by an interview by the French sociologist, Emmanuel Todd, who is actually a very interesting man. He's a sociologist, but 
He's somebody who's discussed, you know, the Soviet Union, the United States, and things of this kind. Now, he provided some figures. I can't verify these figures, but I think they're probably true. And he said that despite having a much smaller student population than the United States, Russia today produces 30% more engineers than the United States does. Now, I, I, I think that's probably right. And of course, that's Russia. <laughs> what China produces, I'm not even going to try and guess. And you can't just change that. Again, my wife works in higher education. You can't just turn around and change your entire education educational system, oblige people to start you know, doing engineering classes, focusing exclusively on STEM subjects. It doesn't work like that. I mean, you have lots of different pressures and competing things that are happening, and you can't just, from one day to the next, change your educational system. And even if you do, it'll take 20 years before you start to notice a difference. That's the reality. It, it, it absolutely is. I was reading uh, The Russian Way of War. This was published by uh, the U.S. Army University Press. And these are, these are two, uh, two men with a, a military background. They also have studied the Russian language. And they were talking about the, the structure of R Russian education and how before they even get to college, they've they've taken courses in things like welding and machining. And so uh, when you get a and, and the, the Russia has done this very deliberately because uh, when they have conscripts come into the army, I think it's for about a year. So that's not a lot of time. And I, I was talking about this six months training a tanker. If they could shorten that, they would, but they can't. It, ha it has to be that long to make an effective entry-level tanker. And so what Russia has done is created all of these programs that you can do before you, be, before you do your service that give you skills that by the time you do your one year, you already have these skills and they can utilize it. And then when you're done, you can go and you can get a career and you can work in one of these factories. And this is a topic that always comes up when people compare the Russian GDP with Western countries and they say, look how small their economy is. But then look at numbers like ship shipbuilding or car production or tank production. And these are numbers that the West is talking about and citing. And it is just so much larger than any one of these uh, Western countries. And even when you combine Western countries, it, it's very significant. So, uh, and you're absolutely right. It takes years and years and years to do this. Uh, the U.S. has been trying to emphasize on, on science, technology, engineering, mathematics for years, but it, it really has not made any difference. The gap between, because this is about China now, the gap between the U.S. and China continues to grow. And of course, I mean, China has a population several times larger than the U.S. They already have this in place. They continuously invest in it. There's no way the U.S. is going to catch up. And then for, for Russia, they have maintained that structure of imparting vocational skills on young people so that when they reach the workforce, they have real tangible skills where they can do things like uh, work in a factory and make physical things. And uh, when you add all of this up together, you get what we see unfolding on the battlefield in Ukraine. You get a one side that thinks they can spin their way to victory, 
and the other side that actually prepared for this fight for years, years and years. And they have a, a structured society for decades designed to, to win a war like this. Alexander, you're, you're, yeah, sorry, I'm unmuting. Your very latest, your very latest video, which I, I have to say, I mean, I watch all your videos, and I think anybody who wants to understand this war should do so. Can I just say that? But your latest video, you're providing tank production numbers in the United States and in Germany, and again, I was, to be honest, I was stunned. I mean, you know, again, the extent to which this is atrophied in countries like Germany, struggling to produce. You know, I think it was just over a score of tanks a year is perhaps what Rheinmetall, one of the great industrial behemoths of the past, would be able to do. They can't even refurbish, you know, about, you know, a couple of old Leopard 2s. It would take them a whole year to do it before they were ready to be sent to Ukraine. And there's problems with the guns and all of that. So I said to myself, well, let me look at Britain. And what did I find? We had two factories which were involved in tank building, one in Leeds, one in Newcastle. Factory in Leeds closed some time ago. So that that capacity doesn't exist anymore. And the one in Newcastle apparently just ticks along. And that's why uh, there's a desire to keep it going. But basically, we cannot make new tanks. Not quickly. I mean, you know, perhaps if we invested, if we built up the industrial know-how to do it, we could do it. But at the moment, Britain just doesn't have the ability, certainly not within any time frame, that Ukraine could use to produce tanks. We, and in fact, what we're doing, because we need to have a more advanced tank system, this, you know, fleet than the one we have at the moment is we're going to re renovate the Challenger 2s. We're going to make them into Challenger 3s. We're going to do all kinds of things to the Challengers to make them a little better. But and in order to do that, we have to cannibalize some Challenger 2s <laughs> to provide parts for these new Challenger 3s. It, it, but and the numbers, the total tank numbers as a result are going to fall significantly we're going to be around you know 150 tanks at the end of the at the end of this process or so it seems so you know, it, it gives you a sense of the industrial atrophy that we have seen and of course it is because the economic system that we have in britain and in the united states increasingly and I suspect before long in Germany as well, simply doesn't incentivize manufacturing and production. That's not where people go if they want to make careers. And I think that's, unless you change that, unless you change your entire economic system, you're not going to succeed in persuading young people to focus on STEM subjects to the extent that you know, governments want them to do, because ultimately, why would they want to? Why would they want to train as machinists when it's a dead end career, where there isn't very, very much demand for it um, in the West today? 
And when in Western society, they promote a, a lifestyle of getting rich quick, um, you know, do it, getting, getting a maximum amount of money for the least amount of work and machining is hard work. Working in a factory is, is hard work and, and people don't want to do that. And, and so, uh, what you were talking about, the challengers, uh, it's, it's perfectly legitimate to take old tanks and modernize them and, and, you know, like the 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 T-72s and even T-90s, they are upgrading those and modernizing them. And they're perfectly fine on the battlefield. The problem is you can't do that if you're going to start sending your tanks to Ukraine to be destroyed by Russian forces. You're shrinking the pool of Challenger 2s that you have to use for this, this program. So you so whatever they, they planned on having, they're going to have fewer than that. And when you now that you bring this up, so say the UK has somewhere around 200 something Challenger 2 tanks and however many of those are actually combat ready, you, you, how many do they actually have that they can spare to send Ukraine? If this is their plan to use them for the Challenger 3 program, how many do they have to spare? And by the way, this is something that many other countries are doing with their Leopard 2s. This is what, this is what the Leopard 2 is. It's constantly being upgraded. They, they take the tanks, they disassemble them, they put them back together mm. with the new components, the new systems. That is how they're upgrading their tank fleets. How are you going to do that if you send them to Ukraine to be destroyed? So that's, it's, I, uh, I, I was gonna say yeah. that it's demilitarizing Ukraine. It's also very clearly demilitarizing the rest of NATO. Absolutely. Now I saw figures again for the total size of the Leopard 2 tank fleet. It's apparently 2,300 300 tanks. Apparently 500 of those you can ignore because they're basically not fit for use. And apparently that's true. A lot of the tanks in Germany and especially in Spain are not fit for use. Some of them, as you could, as you correctly say, are older variants. They're not apparently fully interoperable. There are interoperability problems and um, countries are very unwilling to part with these tanks many of them because they don't have that many tanks by themselves so you're going to have problems there as well well we've been talking for an hour uh, uh, Brian I think this is a good moment for me to switch over to Alex and Alex undoubtedly has things he wants to discuss and we're no doubt we'll have some questions so, um, Alex? Yeah, you guys have time, 30 minutes to go through some questions from the, yeah, from the viewers. Sure. Is that all right, Brian? Yes. Yeah. And real quick, before we get to the questions, I saw a lot of people in the chat talking about the latest missile strike, Brian, and the, uh, the news that Russia jammed a lot of the, the radar technology of, uh, of Ukraine. Have you heard about that? No, I, I haven't I, heard about I, it. I, yeah, I, I, I heard uh, I heard this claim, but I, I don't know. I, and uh, Alexander, actually, in your your update about the missile strike, you were talking about these ballistic missiles and what they do is they come sh straight down. And so it's very hard for their their air defense systems to do anything about them. And, and that might have been what the problem is. There's also the problem of Russia gradually destroying all of Ukraine's radar. Mm, set yeah. so i mean the number continues to dwindle as it dwindles your your vision of the the total battlefield continues to fog and and dissipate okay great so let's get to some questions we'll get to as many questions as we can and whatever questions we don't get to we will answer all of them in a dedicated video 
And let's, uh, let's start with uh, Raphael, who says, Russia was never afraid of NATO and the U.S. You know, I don't actually agree with that. <laughs> I think a couple of years ago, they were very afraid of NATO and the U.S. And one of the reasons why we are in this situation is because the Russians were becoming increasingly alarmed by the way in which NATO was being extended eastwards. And they were looking at these um, U.S. missile bases in Eastern Europe. Of course, they say that they're anti-ballistic missiles, but Russians believe that they're really intended to provide launch pads for missiles to strike at Russia. The Russians were very worried about these things. So I think they were very afraid of NATO. I think now that they've been exposed to the reality, they are starting to become less afraid in some respects. But that's been one of the consequences of this war. Uh, and I ag I agree with that. I, this is why this is why there is this war in the first place. The U.S. and its allies were deliberately, openly encircling and attempting to contain Russia and also China, and they were overthrowing the governments of nations right along Russia's periphery, including Ukraine. And they were openly talking about this in the Atlantic Council for years and years about how they were going to do the exact same thing to Russia. So Russia understood this as a threat that. They may not be afraid in the sense of afraid to do something about it because they most certainly are doing something about it. But the, the threat was real. They realized it, it was a, a very real danger. This is why they're reacting to it. Yeah. Here's an interesting comment from Commando Crossfire. At this point, Russia is not just a country. It is an idea, a hope. The idea that all men are created equal and by God's good grace. Do you want to know why Russia won't lose? Because ideas are bulletproof. Interesting. They used interesting to say about the United States. Yeah. Well, absolutely. I mean, you know, it'd be interesting. I mean, it'd have one, we have often said that you know, the so the Soviet Union is becoming America, and America and Russia is becoming America. It seems it's almost as if the two places, the two countries, are switching places. Well, I wouldn't go quite that far. But again, um, I, you know, again, I was following Colonel McGregor here, and he was talking about this and about the fact that Russia today has a degree of cohesion, which the United States is, and, and Western countries generally are starting to, oh, well, not starting. I mean, they have, to a very great extent, lost. And I think that is true. Uh, just No says why Russia is not using an EMP nuke an atmosphere to create an EMP in the area where there is a lot of Ukraine equipment is concentrated. Uh, Brian, do you know what this is? Because I have no idea what this is. <laughs> well, it's a, it's an electromagnetic pulse from a nuclear, a nuclear detonation. And the obvious answer of why Russia would not do that is because it would be perceived as a nuclear strike. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Uh, Irish Partisan says, what do you think of the sudden resignation of Viet Vietnamese president uh, when, when John Foots and a number of senior government ministers today? I think it signals realignment of Vietnam towards Russia and China. Right. Well, it wouldn't surprise me at all, but this is the first I've heard about it. So I am not going to comment about something I know virtually nothing about. Yeah, I, I will have to look into that. I I have been tracking U.S. interference in Vietnam's internal political affairs. Mm -hmm. They have the NED uh, chipping away 
or trying to at least in Vietnam, just like everywhere else. And it really is a, a tug of war trying to get Vietnam to, to be a belligerent toward China against its own best interests. Yeah. Uh, Sanjeva says, hey, Brian, I love your work. Just so that we don't feel like we're being in a bubble, can you argue against the hypothesis that Russia will win, i.e. what scenario will NATO win in the current war? If, if Russian production numbers, I mean, if they have everyone tricked, including anti-Russian propaganda outlets like Novoya Gazeta, and they actually have a, a much smaller production rate and they don't have the capacity to expand it. And uh, just like you said, Alex, if, if Putin has tricked absolutely everyone, all of these countries that have begun pivoting away from the West because they can see what a train wreck this entire uh, exercise has been. If he has tricked absolutely everyone, and it really is much worse than we all suspect, then then maybe maybe uh, they'll they'll run out of missiles. This you know that last strike was the last one. Yeah, he's tricked everybody. Everybody. Mm. That that's how they would lose. Uh, Lada Moreau says, "What do you think about Adestovich's resignation? What will wait for him in the future? Do you think he has much dirt on Alensky to worry about?" I, I saw that. I mean, is it is it real? That's the first thing to say. I mean, you know, I, I, I'm not saying. absolutely. I mean, yeah. Bear, I think, bear, I, I bear think it is. Yeah. I think it's real. I think it is. Well, I'm going to say what I think about that. In that case, I would regard that as a further large piece of evidence that the wheels are coming off because Aristovich has been an absolutely central player in the whole Ukrainian media operation which is the only part of this war where, where Ukraine has been consistently winning. If, if it's true that he resigned, then I, I agree. Mm. That he, he, you know, he sees a sinking ship. He's exploited it to its fullest. He's starting to find himself in trouble. Just, you know, things that he says that he thinks are, are you know, because when you really start to lose and it becomes really obvious that you're losing no matter what you say, you're going to end up a scapegoat because you are in the in, you're in the limelight, and the smartest thing to do is to just disappear, to fade away, and let somebody else take take the heat. So maybe that's if again, if that's confirmed. I mean, I, I've seen reports saying he resigned. I've seen reports saying he was fired, and there are also reports saying he was forced to uh, to resign. Those are yeah. the reports that are coming um, in. Uh, if that is I the case, then yeah, it's a smart yeah. move. I don't think it makes any difference, which it, which it was. I mean, if he resigned, it's exactly for the reasons that uh, uh, Brian said he's jumping before uh, you know the ship sinks. If he's been basically shown the door, it's because the whole narrative is collapsing, and uh, you know he's just becoming too incredible now. So one way or the other, as I said, it's a sign. It's a sure sign, to my thinking. That the wheels are that the wheels are coming off. Now, as I said, you know, I, I just want to get a little bit more precision yeah, about the story. Yeah, I, I, I don't think he's he's made a statement yet, so we no, can't say this no. is a hundred percent. But this yes. is what what everything everyone is reporting. Um, yes. Michael says, Professor Tim Wilson has described Alex and Alexander as not has not been Greek, but they've been Russian trolls. Well, I, I, I'm not going to even. Who's, who's that? that who is who well, is I've no idea who I. I don't even know who that is. is. Tim Wilson is, and I, I'm not going to waste time answering that yeah, question. I mean, I mean, it's, I mean it's, a weird comment. Um, yeah. Let's see here. 
Mm -hmm. um, hmm. Feels strange not being Greek, Alexander. <laughs> uh, <laughs> Commando Crossfire says, the, the, whole, uh, the whole is to prolong the conflict. I don't think or care if Ukraine wins or not. Just prolong to cause as much damage to both Ukraine and Russia. Agree with that, Brian? That, that is what they are achieving by doing this. Now, look, look at Afghanistan. Uh, what, what did they accomplish? Now, uh, over a trillion dollars was spent. It did not go into a black hole. It went into the accounts of Western arms manufacturers <laughs> and contractors. And I suspect that the, the, same, the same benefit is, is, is compelling many in, in the U.S. to keep this going for as long as possible. That is at least one major component of it. Yeah. Mm. I, I'm just going to say something about this. I mean, they are destroying Ukraine. That is indisputable. The, the country they say they want to help. Are they really weakening Russia? <laughs> I mean, all right, Russians are being killed, and that is a tragedy and it's a terrible thing. But the economy is shifting gears. <laughs> um, it seems to be adapting very well to the sanctions problems. It's probably on a trajectory for stronger growth without, you know, the problems with the, which, you know, the over-dependence in some respects on the West was creating. And of course, in its, in military terms, it's now launching a build-up. That doesn't look to me like a weakening. <laughs> I mean, I, I just make that point. Yeah. Uh, Rudolph says NATO will never send the latest tank versions as the Leo 2 A7V or the Abrams SEPV3. Why? Once they are all destroyed, they will say, but these were old models. Anyways, it will be great commercial for weapons made in Russia. That, that, that is true, and that this is the reason why the U.S. isn't sending the Gray Eagle drone, because they were, they, well, they knew that it was going to get shot down. It would end up in the hands of uh, Russian engineers, and this is the, the case for many weapon systems. So, so, you know, I, and, and, but sending the Challenger, too. I, I don't know if they're going, I mean, are they going to take the Chobham armor off? They have this classified armor on these tanks. Are they going to take it off before they send it to yeah. Ukraine to get captured by Russia? I don't know. Well, there, there's, a whole article about the, there's a whole article about that in the Telegraph today. I, th I think I sent it to you before, but, you know, saying, you know, huh? it'd be an absolute disaster if a Challenger 2 fell into Russian hands because they'd get to know all about our Chobham armor and our sophisticated and electronics. And clearly somebody thinks this is a very bad idea. Yeah. Andre says Aristovich resigning means nothing. Remember, he already resigned on January 17th of last year. Well, uh, as I said, I will wait to see if it really yeah. has happened. Let's, let's wait and see. Yeah. Yeah. yeah let's wait and see. Uh, M. Wick says the golden trio, accurate commentator and analytical master and brilliant buccaneer rating the neocons narrative. <laughs> Thank you, M. Wick, for that. Fantastic. Uh, Super chat there. Uh, let's see here. Where are we? One sec, guys. Hmm. Got a lot of questions to, to go through. Sanjeva says, present Russia, unlike in World War II, has an aversion to taking casualties for good reason. Most Russian families only have one kid. Do you think this puts them in the back foot? How can they compensate for this? Well, I, I think that there's a misunderstanding, first of all, about the Second World War. I don't think the Russians during the Second World War were heedless of casualties. I think there's been a lot of discussion, you know, studies about how that 
the Red Army fought in the Second World War. And there's a lot of myths still. I mean, the, 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 the casualties were horrendous, but this was not because it was, you know, engaging human wave tactics or anything of that kind. It was because it was a different kind of war. And I think in this kind of war, I think the fact that the Russians want to avoid casualties amongst their soldiers is entirely understandable. And do remember that today Putin has to answer to a very, very vocal and very active public opinion. Joseph Stalin didn't. I mean, that, that, that already makes for a fundamental difference. I mean, the Russia of today is not the same as the Russia of all those years ago. And, and it's a war of attrition. And so yeah. Russia is heavily invested yeah. in preserving its fighting capacity while diminishing Ukraine's. So, so this, this is the main reason they are risk averse mm. in, in that sense. Yeah. Harry asks, is the plan to deliver these tanks by FedEx or question mark? Facetious in tone, but an actual question, nevertheless. Good question. How wow. are they going to get these tanks to the, to the front, Brian? Uh, well, I mean, them. normally they, they would send them by train and then they would have to disperse them uh, by by flatbed trucks. And uh, again, because Russia is hammering the, the power grid and the, the railway uses electric locomotives, I, I don't, that's going to complicate it. It's going to complicate first sending them there in the first place and then mm -hmm. sending them back and forth for maintenance. And then... Uh, I, again, I want to explain the reason Russia doesn't blow these things up when they cross the border is because the, the border is very far away from where Russia is. They can launch a, a cruise missile. It takes time to reach there. By the time it reaches there, is the target even going to still be there? So you have very few opportunities and few options to hit a tank as it's crossing the border. As it gets closer to the front line, your options broaden and your opportunities broaden. And this is exactly how Russia has been destroying wave after wave of equipment that the West has been sending Ukraine. They're going to do the exact same thing with these tanks. It would be much easier and more efficient to destroy them closer to the front line than as they cross the border. But taking out the power grid is going to complicate that. Mm -hmm. yeah. A different perspective says the machine is a vampire and inability to self-reflect and can only exist at man's expense. Iraq Afghanistan, today Ukraine, tomorrow Poland, UK, eventually LA. West citizens' behavior is an eerie, is an eerie like the Germans in World War II blinders. Well, I, I think that's, uh, I mean, that puts it very vividly, but there is a nihilistic side to all of this. Of that, there is no doubt. I mean, you only have to look at the pattern of the consequences of Western policy over the last 30 years to see that. 437 thanks 1138 says I was an M1A1 tank commander takes two hours to show how to operate it six months to not break it by accident in a year to be moderately very effective idiot proof but not a veteran maker. I have a story of the first time I went into an M1A1 because the US Marine Corps never got the M1A2s. Uh, uh, there was three of us in there with a, a army. It was an army sergeant that was showing us everything inside. And my my one buddy almost got his arm taken off by the ammo door because 
it'll it'll detect your arm and bounce back at a certain distance. But when it gets too close, so the sergeant had to yank him out before he lost his arm. And then my my other buddy almost dropped the gun breech, which weighs. I mean, it's just a giant block of metal. He almost dropped it on his knee, and that would have completely destroyed his leg and the sergeant had to grab him so just those few minutes we were in there for the first time we you know two of us almost got uh maimed permanently that these things are extremely dangerous they're extremely powerful and they're just as dangerous to be inside as they are to be on the wrong side of the gun because everything about it is business it's it's the the pinnacle of armed combat uh you know in in modern times and, and the same goes for, for Russian tanks as well. You have to know what you're doing. You cannot just jump in these things. It's not an episode of G.I. Joe. Peter Sukletis says, brilliant analysis as always. Quick question. The impact of the ground turning to ice for either side vis-a-vis -vis the melting in the spring. Is this urgent for Russia to push forwards? Thanks again. Love you guys. I don't think, uh, well, I don't think we know what the plans are. But yeah, wait, Brian, 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 go ahead. Yeah. Well, well, I was just going to say pr pretty much we, we don't know. I've, I've, I'm kind of 50-50 on whether Russia is going to launch some m massive offensive or if they're, if they're just building up these forces to exploit a significant collapse in Ukraine's fighting capacity. Uh, mm -hmm. this, this war of attrition seems to be working for them. Mm -hmm. This methodical, incremental inching across the battlefield while sucking in all of Ukraine's forces. I mean, I, I don't even know why they would take the risk of launching offensive. It's because there's a lot of unknowns, but we just have to wait and see. And, and the weather is a factor. But ultimately, if it, if it doesn't work out for the winter because the weather is not cooperating, then they will adjust those plans accordingly. Yeah. Just I, to I say about that, that yeah. I agree with that assessment as well. By the way, just to say that, uh, there's been a report from a Spanish journalist, and he's talking about the huge numbers of troops and machines that Ukraine has deployed to Bakhmut. I mean, apparently the whole area is I mean, saturated with Ukrainian soldiers. So they're still being drawn into this. Why go on an offensive? Trap. It's coming to you. Well, exactly. It's coming to you. Exactly. Yeah, it yeah. doesn't make any sense. Yeah, I agree. Mm -hmm. uh, Elena Diaz says, what do Russians say when German tanks, again, are being used against them? Is it any discussion about it in Russia? Do Germans realize the optics of this in Russia? Do they care, given their history? I, I don't know about Germans, but, you know, absolutely correct. This has been widely commented about in Russia. The, you know, German tanks, that they're going to be facing German tanks on what they regard as their own territory again. And that there is a lot of comment about this. There's also some anger about it because, of course, there was all this feeling that after the 1960s, relations between Germany and Russia had been sorted, at least to a certain extent, that there'd been these joint commitments to put the past behind them. And, of course, now they find themselves again fighting German tanks. So, you know, this is, this is something that the Russians do talk about. It's all over the media there. Uh, whether the Germans understand it or realize it, I just don't know. 
And, and whether the Western media wants to admit or not, a certain ideology is highly prevalent uh, in Ukraine today. It, it, it does exist, and history is going to look back and recognize that. And Russia is going to have Leopard 2 tanks sitting in their tank museums next to Tiger, Tiger 2, and uh, all of these others from World War II that they captured. And it is going to be Germany's shame for, for another generation or two to come. So they, they, as you were saying, Alexander, they were repairing those relationships. Now they're right back to square one, which seems to be something the West is really interested in doing these days. Mm. That's the point, isn't it? Further uh, keep Germany away from uh, from Russia. Exactly. Yeah, that's the point. Exactly. Rufus says it started with javelins, transports, artillery, anti-air systems, and now tanks. Will NATO escalate to fighter jets and nuclear weapons? Your thoughts, Brian? Well, I mean, look at all the problems they have with tanks. This is something that operates on the ground. Now, uh, a warplane is many times more com complex and supporting it is mu much more difficult. You have to build an airbase for these things to operate from that Russia is obviously going to know where it is. And so th they're going to be having uh, all of the problems that they have with all of these ground systems that they're using and constantly losing on the battlefield, then they had an Air Force at the beginning of this in, in late uh, February 2022, and Russian air power and air defenses took them down, and they will do the exact same thing to F-16s. There's nothing special about an F-16 because this is the most likely plane that they would transfer to Ukraine. There's nothing special about it that, that Russia will not be able to do to it what they did to Ukraine's entire Air Force already. Mm -hmm. Toilet Sauce asks, asks, if you already know these tanks are not going to work for Ukraine, why risk having them captured by Russia? If you are so convinced of their technological superiority, that is. Well, this is this is the question I find myself asking. I mean, the whole thing has now developed a kind of mad logic about it, which is becoming irrational, which is what happens when people become fixated and obsessed. They no longer think rationally any longer. They just do things that are becoming increasingly eccentric and bizarre and ultimately self-defeating because you're absolutely right. I mean, there's this article I said in the Daily Telegraph, which very, I mean, it, it comes up with this farcical suggestion we are, let's not send challenger twos let's send challenger ones that jordan is uh, giving up on i mean when the, you know so let's get them back from jordan and then send them all off to to ukraine but i mean what it's really saying is well it's not a good idea to send challenger twos because we're going to compromise all our technological secrets tank secrets so why are we sending them but They've decided they're going to go ahead and do it anyway because they can't admit to themselves that this is going wrong. They can't face up to the reality that they're losing. Right. Um, Marshall says, uh, what's up, gents? Do you think that with the combat ability displayed by the Wagner Merce at both Solidar and Bakhmut solidifies them as an elite unit but i i've made my own opinions about the wagner group fairly well known 
by now, at least I hope so, which is that I'm absolutely sure that this is uh, an organisation which, despite the fact that there are clearly tensions between it and some of the people in the Ministry of Defence, it is ultimately an, an organisation that has been set up with some help from the Russian state, definitely, and probably following a decision by the Russian state. They need a unit like this so that they can deploy it in all kinds of places, in West Africa, in Latin America, and wherever you like, whilst preserving a degree of de deniability. So I think it will continue beyond this war to have a role. It will be part of the toolkit that the Russians are developing so that they can you know, pursue an active foreign policy and send people to places like West Africa to basically help their friends. And, and it mirrors what other Western countries have been doing, the, the French Foreign Legion, and then the US has a, a, a myriad of private military companies doing this. Exactly. And so if, if Russia wants to compete or, or wants to protect itself and its, its interests and its allies, they need to mm. kind of mirror what the West is doing to a certain degree. Yes. Uh, Euro Gabor says repair of the tanks won't be an issue at all. Just use the standard parts of washing machines and dishwashers like the Russians do. Send a text to expert Ursula for help. She is great in SMS handling. <laughs> well said, Euro Gabor. Uh, Angry Warhawk says Are there enough level heads in Washington to accept defeat peacefully, or will they destroy everything out of spite when they are finally faced with it? That's the big question. I think in the end, the answer is yes. I think that when the moment comes, if we're looking at some kind of a debacle in Ukraine, which I think we will, I think there will be pressure to do all kinds of stupid things like send tens of thousands of American troops and perhaps even go beyond that. But I think that there will be enough people in Washington to hold the line. I accept that the wish is the father to the thought and policy de decision making in Washington is becoming more and more irrational all the time. But I think there's just enough sense of reality left amongst enough policymakers to prevent us going to the ultimate point. Well, I, and, and also we're talking about why is the West sending you know, their own tanks now? They're sending all of their equipment and it, it's getting closer mm -hmm. and closer to the best equipment that they have they're sending and losing in Ukraine. But isn't this what NATO existed for in the first place, was to eventually fight Russia? They're doing it through Ukraine, which for them I think is ideal. And maybe from their point of view, sending their, emptying their inventories out and mm -hmm. winning, uh, even if it, it doesn't seem like it's working, but continuing down this path is worth it because uh, that's why they have armies in the first place is Russia. Uh, but but then again, there's also China and then there's all of these other countries that the, the West uses their military to coerce and they're not going to be able to do that. So it's no matter how this is, is resolved, they, they're going to be in a weaker position than when they started and things are going to be more difficult no matter how this in Ukraine turns out. That I, I think. It's existential for Russia, but it's also existential for NATO as well. NATO. Uh, zero. Emmanuel, uh, just, just to say, Emmanuel Todd in his interview has made exactly that point as well. That is becoming, that, that the United States doesn't realize that this is becoming existential for the American position in Europe too. 
that, that, that this hasn't yet fully dawned in the US, but that is the direction of travel. Zero Enoch Zero says, question for you guys on the screen. What's your thoughts on Israel's new government moving closer to Russia regarding this S fight? We just have to wait and see whether it does, in fact, move closer to Russia. I think there's going to be lots of competing pressures, but I don't think Israel is going to make any difference in this war. And and I just would like to say Israel, Saudi Arabia, uh, many other nations that we perceived as being close U.S. and Western allies, we're going to see them pivot away as the West implodes on itself and, and resorts to irrational mm. thinking and self-destructive behavior. And that then they see Russia and China rising. It's, it's, it's self-preservation. You're going to want to pivot that in that direction. And, and so I think pe people who think Israel is married, uh, connected, you know, at the hip with the West, it, I don't think so. I think they will pivot eventually out of self-preservation and common sense, ho hopefully. EU Tech Health says, as China's starfish is about to pop, unlike Russia, a resource-based economy, sanctions on Russia on China, sanctions on China would ruin it from the EU and the US. Always look at what Putin does not do, not what he does. I, do. I, so that I gives you a better indication of his mindset. Yes, I, I don't agree. I don't think sanctions on China are going to destroy the Chinese economy. I think they're going to do the opposite. <laughs> I think if we go down that that road of an economic war against China, then the effect on Western economies is going to be devastating. Now, I can say that, and it's not just me. There's just been a report, apparently, to the British cabinet saying that the British cabinet hasn't actually thought through what the effect of an economic war with China would be, that it would be absolutely devastating for the British economy if they did that. And that's apparently an official report from the British Civil Service, the economics departments, the Treasury, the industry uh, uh, department and all that. And I gather that there are the same kind of warnings being made in Germany as well. The German foreign minister, Annalena Baerbock, is known to want to reorient German uh, foreign policy to a very much harder position against China. And the German business community, which has been so intimidated into silence over this ruinous sanctions war with Russia, apparently on this they've said enough. We're not prepared to go there again. They've been pushing back very hard, apparently, behind the scenes. They've been telling Olaf Scholz, look, just don't go here. If you do this, well, we're already saddled with all the problems you've given us with this quarrel with Russia. With China, it would be an order of magnitude worse. And frankly, I've seen reports that, you know, half half of German industry would close. So that that's what I've... And, and these are, you know... Not us saying these things. It's the British civil service in the one case. It's the German business community in the other. I think people underestimate the resilience of the Chinese economy, just as they underestimated the resilience of the Russian economy. I, do, I think it would cope with the sanctions. But I, with the West, we're in a much more fragile position than we realize. And can I just add in an example of the 
the the U.S. and pressuring the the West to put sanctions on. I mean, there's already sanctions in in certain ways on China and obviously on Russia. So they're developing their own commercial aircraft, both Russia and China. And they were using Western engines on these aircraft, but because of the sanctions and because of the direction everything is going, they're, they're developing their own domestic engines. China has a larger population than the G7 combined. Their own domestic uh, market for airliners is huge. It's it's so huge yeah. that if they develop these own engines on their own, first of all, these Western manufacturers are going to be blocked out. Not not just engine manufacturers, but also airline uh, line art manufacturers. And then China is going to have this this huge market all to themselves. And then they are going to prove their technology and then they're going to be able to sell to internet. So they're sh the West is shooting themselves into the foot in the foot because they cannot accept that China is surpassing them and to just rise with them. They're going to, out of spite and, and completely illogically, they're going to shoot themselves in the foot and destroy their own economy in the process. There's nothing the West can do that China cannot eventually figure out, and in Russia for that matter. Yeah. Mm. Robert12324 says they think this is a video game. Let's spawn in more tanks. Mm. Mm. Fleet Lord Atvar says, good, good. And we'll do a few more questions here. And we'll uh, we'll wrap it up. Uh, Jeffrey Brown says, thank you for your great insight into this dreadful situation. BFT Eyes Wide says, not to insult Ukrainian people, but how much longer can they eat up their leaders as BS, continue facing the, the uh, imminent problems? Is the hate truly towards brotherly Russians with more than their own lives? I think this is a very difficult question to answer because, of course, one doesn't, doesn't, doesn't really know what the mood amongst a lot of people in Ukraine is. It's all very well people saying, you know, why don't people rise up? Why, don't the army, why doesn't the army mutiny? If you know history, these things don't happen that easily in any country, certainly not in a country at war. Things have to get very bad. And the government needs to be very weak and dysfunctional and disorganized before it can happen. And, and even just under training conditions, you as a soldier, uh, you don't know what's going on even when you're just training and you're just being given the information you're, the people just above you are giving you. You don't have a chance to talk to people higher up. So, you, so you're in this situation. You depend on your, your immediate superiors just to survive day to day in terms of food and equipment and everything. And so you, it's a very precarious situation. They may even want to, but they have no idea how to. There are severe consequences in, in war. They'll shoot you dead. And I think a lot of Ukrainian society, it's a combination of they've been misinformed, they're being lied to, it's human nature, and also out of fear. It's the fear of the unknown. It's also the fear of the known, of the consequences of trying yeah. to, to dispute any, anything that's going on. Well said. And Rudolph says here pretty much the same thing. Do you think Ukrainian people will finally raise, rise up and get rid of the Kiev regime? So many deaths injured missing. This would be the best outcome that soldiers turn their weapons towards Kiev. There, you are starting to see protests in uh, Kiev from yeah. the mothers and wives of the soldiers. And you can see every so often those protests are getting bigger and bigger, but it, it's it's going to take time yeah. before yeah. this happens. Yeah, I, I think we're very far from the point where yeah. that develops into a serious yeah. threat to the to the government. I mean, 
to be frank. Yeah. Sparky says, even sensible policymakers in DC get most of their info from the mainstream media. The sensible can be misguided. Well, this is uh, true. I'll, say, I'll say the policymakers here get pretty much all of their info from, from CNN and the New York Times. Mm -hmm. It's, it's, it's alarming. I mean, if, even here, I'm in Thailand. I've, I've, you know, some people that I've talked to, they ask me questions and I just wonder how, why would you ever ask me that question? How do you not know that that's, that's just CNN lying? How, how do you not know that? And it's, 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 a, it's extremely alarming because that means so many people in a, who are sensible generally and, and generally people mm. who are looking out for the best interests of, of the people in their country, but they, they are just getting the wrong information and they, they don't even second guess this. Oh, it's CNN, it's BBC. Why would they lie? I don't know. I don't know what the answer is to this, except for us to continuously try to break through yeah. that, that wall. Uh, Yazeki wants to know, could Alexander give the spelling of the name of the bloke who broadcasts in Sevastopol, Crimea? It sounded like but Paris Rosin, Rosin, R O Z Rosin, R O Z H I N. But if you want to find his site, then it's Colonel Cassad, C A double S A D. Okay, I'll add that in the chat real quick. Um, Max G nine nine says, any thought on the Poseidon real life damage capacities? Also, I heard Scott Ritter mentioning the end of of us if the conflict reaches nuclear. I saw conflicting reports maxing casualties at 1 billion. Any thoughts on this? Well, I mean, this is Dr. Strangelove territory. I don't know whether you remember, there's Dr. Tur General Turgidson who says, you know, it'll be 100, if we, if we get into a nuclear war, it's 150 million max. I mean, it's, it's, let's not even think about these horrific possibilities. What I will say is this, the Russians, and, you know, they haven't done this because, They've just one day finally decided that they were going to build hypersonic missiles and nuclear powered torpedoes. They've done it because they see themselves as being threatened. And, you know, they're developing all these weapon systems. And anybody who cares about the future of humanity ought to be worried about that. And we ought to be seeking some kind of understanding and some kind of negotiation. But, of course, we've been doing exactly the opposite. We're provoking them even more. And it is the most dangerous time I can remember in the whole of my lifetime. I mean, I lived through the Cold War. I've never known anything like this. It's, it's desperation and it's, it's driving increasingly irrational behavior. I think during yes. the Cold War, the West was much more confident. And now they are not, and it, it is showing through, and I think it's showing through more and more as this goes on. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Danielle wants to know, how are casualty numbers being hidden, and are we hearing from families who have lost members? The numbers seem so high amongst Ukrainians, but also Westerners. We need peace. Thank you for the work you do. Thank you very much. Well, I mean, Alex pointed out that there are now protests in Kiev and such places, and I'm sure that will gather uh, uh, pace. But why is it not reported? Well, it's probably circular. I'm sure there's lots of discussions. I mean, I saw, I read a really very distressing public letter by a policewoman in Western Ukraine. And then there was an even more agitated public letter by somebody uh, um, uh, who's obviously whose loved ones was in a 
Ukrainian brigade. And, you know, they were very distressing reading. So the people are aware of this. They're not giving exact figures. And, of course, in the West, where, to be frank, I mean, it's, you know, the numbers are just insignificant. And very few people in the West are in contact with people who are actually fighting in this war. Well, you can just tell whatever numbers you like. And um, nobody knows better. From Island Popsicle, I doubt the rest of East Asia would be happy with Japan rearming. They have long memories. Just another example of the West's misguided ideas. I think I think the situation for Japan is going to be a lot like Germany. They're just going to implode because the U.S. is compelling them in, in this direction. Uh, just like Germany, they had the, the possibility of working together with Russia, getting cheap energy, being a... a competitor globally in terms of manufacturing Japan has the, the Ch Japan's one of their largest if not their largest trade partner is China and yet they're they're going to pursue this foreign policy that is not in their own best interest at all it is purely in the interest of of Washington and using Japan as a proxy against China just as Germany is being used as a proxy in, in a way against mm. Russia and it's going to have the same outcome and the rest of the region wants nothing to do with this. They want stability. They're, they're benefiting from China's rise. They're mm -hmm. benefiting from trade with China, tourism from China. They, they don't want the boat rock. They want stability. And so Japan doing this is going to isolate them in the region. Nobody's going to want to be a part of this. Indeed. And can I just add to that? that, that those entirely good points. I read an article just before we did this program in the British media about the extreme fragility of the Japanese financial system and how it could very well be the start, the place where a, a next, the next global financial crisis starts. I don't know whether that's true or not, but it does seem that the financial system has many problems in Japan. I would have thought that that's the issue that the Japanese leadership, the Japanese government ought to be focusing on rather than fictional threats from countries like Russia, which, to be straightforward about it, want good relations with Japan. Dr. Liniana Corredor asks, the desperation of the West at Ukraine's defeat is dangerous. Your comments? I think we've talked about this over the course of the whole program. What more is there to say? Mm -hmm. David S. wants to know, Brian, can you see an end to this? Oh, that's the, that's the see an end to this. Uh, I, <laughs> that's a know, good this question. Is, this, is just going, this is just going to drag on for as long as they can drag it on for. I don't think yeah. they have an end game in mind. It's going to end no. when it ends. And I know that's a, a strange answer, but that it's like in Syria or Afghanistan, when all of the, when all of the paths forward are closed off uh, by Russia and their allies, then it's just going to sort of, in a way, resolve itself. And we watched, we watched Russia do this in Syria. The United States attempted to escalate in so many different ways. They, they invaded and they are still occupying part of Syria. They wanted to wage a much wider war against the Syrian government and overthrow it. And Russia blocked it. They, they did many things diplomatically as well as militarily to block it and, and manage the conflict to the end that we see developing now and i think the exact same thing is going to happen in ukraine but just on a much larger and more intense scale yeah i agree with that uh we'll do a couple more and we'll wrap it up 
Island Popsicle says the world deserves to be free of the West's bullying and intimidation. Hopefully it can be done peacefully. Thank you to Duran for your analysis. And uh, from Dan, can they get the second goal without regime change? Uh, can they the win second, the war sorry. without regime change? I, I think is the is the question for Dan. Well, in Russia, war is always war is always a very unpredictable thing. You know, I don't know something might happen, but realistically, I would say no. And I would say something else that the whole point about the war was to achieve regime change in Russia. That was the whole plan. I mean, you know, stage a crisis for Russia, collapse its economy with the sanctions, defeat them in Ukraine, and then over, overthrow the government in Moscow and get rid of that horrible man, Mr. Putin, who's been causing us all this trouble. Well, it's not worked out. And realistically, if it hasn't worked out by now, it's not going to work out at all. Mm. Sanjeva says, by the way, Alexander, in your video on Monday, as we say in Britain, Peskov perhaps denies it a bit too loudly about Prigozhin. Russian Ministry of Defense rift. Priceless words, Alexander. Thank you. <laughs> and um, I think we'll I think we will uh, wrap it up. Lady Moreau says, I follow and support Brian's channel with much interest to lots of great information about the technological side of wars. Highly informative. Yes. Can I just say, and this is an invaluable thing that Brian does, and I don't know anyone else who does it, to be frank, not not in the way that Brian does. You find lots of people who talk about the tactical sides of the war, you know, the operations, the movements and things of this kind. But nobody that I know of takes the trouble to go through each and every Western arms delivery and take it apart in the way that Brian does and explain exactly how these weapon systems work and how they interconnect with each other and what they will do and what they won't do. So I think it's an absolutely indispensable channel for anybody right. who wants to understand let's, this war. Let, let's do two more to wrap up. Private R says, hypothetically, what if the upcoming Russian offensive fails? Hypothetically. Brian, I think it, 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 yeah. well, it, it depends on how the offensive manifests itself. I, again, I I don't know what they're planning on doing. Uh, there's a lot of speculation of what they might do. Go to Kiev, cut off uh, arm shipments from from Poland, and, and and then they would also have to do it from Romania. So I I don't know what they're going to do, and I don't know. But if it fails, what I think will happen is they will end up back to where they are now. This this creeping incremental war of attrition. Yeah. Alexander, you wanted to say something about? I, I, I just think that whatever it is that the Russians are going to do, they're going to make absolutely sure that it doesn't fail. <laughs> I think that's that's the thing to understand. I mean, I, I, I don't see why it would fail. And that's one reason, by the way, why I'm skeptical about some of these very ambitious plans that we're seeing, you know, march to Volinia and all that sort of thing. I think that the Russians will not want to take those sorts of risks. Yeah, I agree with you on that one. The big thing that may be coming is just Russia continuing to, to double and triple yeah. down in the position that they're in. That may be the big thing. Yeah. Uh, T. Yeah. Tom says, Yugoslavia T-84 used to produce excellent tanks. Anybody from the first Gulf War on the chat, both Iraq and Kuwait used them. But uh, the, the uh, thing with main battle tanks is is not, not just the tank itself, but the training and the support that it gets on the battlefield. And that will make all of the difference, really. 
Mm. I mean, they um, were they were, as I remember, adaptions of the T seventy two. But you know, sure, they were very good tanks. And one final one from Charles: As Russia's influence in Africa grows exponentially, is this the next theater between BRICS and the West? Well, I certainly think it's going to be one theater. Uh, don't disregard the fact that it is already a theater now. I mean, we haven't really done enough programs, as we should do, perhaps, about what's been going on in East Africa and Ethiopia. But there was clearly a proxy war we fought there, which, by the way, the West lost. And, of course, we are also seeing a major conflict underway in West Africa as well, with a lot of push and pull there um, all the time. So, yes, it will be a theatre, but it is already that now. And that's not something I say with any pleasure, by the way. I don't like to think of continents and people being used as a chessboard for a battleground between great powers. I think that's a terrible way of approaching international relations. And I hope one day we will get past it. And, and just to add on to that, uh, the United States and its allies only know one one trick, and it's, you know, using terrorists as proxies and then sending in their military. That's all they know how to do. And Russia and China approach it differently. Russia has yeah. has a, 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 an ability to build infrastructure projects. China, obviously, much, much more so. But they also have military muscle that they can mix in with that, but the, the idea is they are pushing for development. The US is just pushing for chaos. And uh, I, I, I think if we, we see in Asia, in Africa, in the Middle East, we see this recipe that the West has come up with failing more and more often. And hopefully it continues to fail because uh, the people in Africa, just like you say, Alexander, they deserve a, a normal life like everyone else. And to mm. be able to live their lives without the, the, the specter of arms conflict hanging over their head constantly because because the West wills it. Yeah. Do you, do you guys have any thoughts on uh, Russia, Syria, and Turkey before we sign out? Have you guys heard anything with regards to the rapprochement between Syria and Turkey? Well, uh, 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 what I can say is that, of course, Putin and Erdogan spoke again yesterday with each other. I, I think this is definitely coming. And I get to say something else. I think that even if Erdogan was to lose the elections in June, which, by the way, I don't think he will. I think he'll make absolutely sure that he doesn't lose the elections. He might face protests and demos, but he's the sort of person who knows how to deal with those. But even if a new government were to appear in Ankara, they would still change the policy from confrontation with Syria. I think there is now a consensus within Turkey that for Turkey's own self-interest and internal peace, this must now be done. Erdogan has been pulled into this. He has, didn't wanted, want to go there just because Turkish society is insisting on it. And that's why I think it will happen. And, and I just want to add also that all throughout the, the Russian intervention in Syria from 2015 onward, there was a lot of criticism of the Russian government. Why aren't you doing more? Why aren't you more forceful? Why aren't you uh, teaching Turkey a lesson? And it was because Russia was looking all the way into the future to this moment, to this development. This is why they did what they did. This is why they took it slow. They were patient. They suffered temporary setbacks. And they're going to do the exact same thing in Ukraine. The only thing they care about is winning. Optics is something that always is secondary. It's not something they don't care about at all, but it's always secondary to 
the long-term goal and they think these things through very carefully, very obviously. Yeah. yeah. Brulal says, by the time these tanks arrive, the Ukrainian air defenses will be so devastated that Russian air superiority will negate these supplies. Unless Ukraine gets more air defense, these deliveries are futile. <laughs> this, this is actually something, yeah, this is something the West, West some Western analysts have started talking about, the diminishing uh, air defense network of Ukraine, the fact that the West doesn't have systems as capable or as numerous to replace it with which means that eventually R Russian air power is going to be able to operate more freely over the battlefield. And we'll end it with Sparky's uh, comment here, which says Reagan often told the story of a Cuban expatriate during the Cold War who said that the U.S. was the last stop for freedom. Ironically, it's now Russia. <laughs> Interesting comment, Sparky. Don't let Tim Wilson hear that. <laughs> whoever, he we'll, uh, whoever he is we'll end it there thank you very much to uh brian berletic from the new atlas the best channel for all of your geopolitical news brian thank you very very much for a great show Th thank you so much for having me on i i really enjoy it every every single time thank you Thank you, Brian. And of course, we have Alexander McCurse, the Oracle of London in London. Any final thoughts, guys, before we sign out and say our goodbyes to everybody? Uh, I think this is the last big throw. I think these tank and armored vehicle deliveries, I, I personally don't think we're going to get a fighter jets. I think there's perhaps just one a, a risk that they might get Poland to do something crazy but i gather there's growing opposition to that in poland so i think this is the last big throw before the end what they do then how they deal with it afterwards is another thing but that that's what i think i agree with that and i think the only thing they can do after this would be either to you know they could try to send warplanes it'll be a disaster it'll be even a bigger disaster mm -hmm. than than what they've done already and then also direct intervention I, I i think they're still seriously thinking about it because this is it after this if they fail in ukraine their credibility is gone forever this this chance of reasserting themselves over russia and also china is over so i i don't know how far they will go to 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 try to reverse what is happening right now it's scary. I think it's scary. Scary indeed. Thank you to everyone that watched us on Rockfin, on Odyssey. Thank you very much to the chat on Odyssey, on Rumble. Fantastic chat on Rumble as well. And everybody that watched us on Telegram. And the YouTube chat was awesome today as well. And thank you to our amazing moderators, Spartan Warrior Queen, and uh, Peter, and GEC, and Alan. And I think I saw Reckless Abandon in there as well. And uh, who else was was with us moderating? Gosh, I hope I didn't leave anybody out. Valley S, I saw Valley S was uh, in the house as well. Hopefully, uh, William Justice. William Justice was also uh, moderating. Thank you very much to our moderators. Thank you to everyone on thedoran.locals.com. Thank you to the chat there as well. Once again, thank you to Brian Berletic. I will have all of Brian's information as a pinned comment down below where you can follow Brian, and it is also in the description box. Take care, everybody.